I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detlef. Dean, this week I've got special news. I'm coming to you live from my mother-in-law's spare room, <laughs> which uh, might be the most uncomfortable place I've ever podcasted uh, ever. It is briefly beaten out by the time I did sit on the floor in my basement to record an episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, her house is great. She's great. I love her. But uh, I'm sitting in a very uncomfortable chair in a very uh, tchotchke filled room. And it's <laughs> it's challenging. Man, uh, we should really keep a, a running sort of tally of all the weirdest places we've recorded a podcast. But I think that is probably at the top. I think so, too. Um, folks, I'm in a big transition right now. I'm moving to another country, and that's really exciting. But uh, until I officially leave the United States, I'm in a very weird space mentally and geographically. So anyways, bear with me. I'm so sorry for whatever this recording sounds like in the end. Um, <laughs> but barring all that, Dean, uh, I, I've heard that you have another game that we can play. That's right. Uh, before you do leave the shores of the United States and say goodbye to Lady Liberty, I thought it would be an appropriate time to start talking about what everybody's talking about these days, uh, evangelicalism. In the United States and elsewhere, uh, we're going to talk on this episode today about the the big weird trend of evangelical media, evangelical documentaries. There's just a whole wave of them. But before we do I have a couple of um, sort of quiz questions. You know, last time on the episode, we did a a game where I asked you about 20th century televangelists or kind of big evangelical pastors. And I thought, what better way to kick this off with some uh, Carl Lentz facts, some Hillsong facts. And I can't even remember what we titled the game last time. Oh, it was a pastor. I hardly know her. So I guess this is a round two. Pastor, I hardly know her. Uh, I'll focus on Carl Lentz, and I only have two for you this time, but I'm excited to see if you can get them. Um, So these are, if you've watched the most recent Secrets of Hillsong documentary that they just sort of uh, released, not a secret anymore, I I think that you'll get maybe sort of the vibe of these questions, but probably not the answers. So you're going to have to draw on the way the documentary has formed you, Matt, and you can figure it out. Oh, my gosh. So the first question, I know, uh, the first question here is, you know, we all know Carl Lentz was present at the baptism of Justin Bieber in a big bathtub. That is so important. Uh, But which of these three NBA players was also baptized by Carl Lentz? So I'm going to give you three. LeBron James, the Space Jam himself, Kevin Durant or Pascal Siakam. Which three, which of these three was baptized by Carl Lentz before his, uh, his big fall from grace? Kevin Durant. He seems like a medium a medium famous person for Carl Lentz to dunk in his bathtub. You got it. You're right. Exactly. Ding, ding, ding. That's 10 Hillsong points for you. Good job. Um, And the second one here is, so the end of the Secrets of Hillsong documentary, it shows Carl Lentz working at a marketing firm, which we'll talk more about later, an extremely funny scene. But in March of this year, what they don't tell you is that he was hired by a church in Oklahoma. He is not a pastor, but he is on staff. And I'm going to give you three potential names for this church, and you can tell me which one you think it is. Is the church. This would be impossible. <laughs> is the church called Elevate, Transformation, or Solid Rock? Uh, it's called Solid Rock. It's got to be, right? 
Uh, you got this one wrong. It is Transformation Church in Oklahoma, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm glad to have pulled one over on you. Um, you know, tragically, it is also not called Our Lady of Perpetual Praise songs, which I think is a missed opportunity. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he is at Transformation Church and all the best to him. I hope I hope it works out. Somewhere out there, there's like a there's a Gen Z priest in formation who will do a youth ministry that is called Our Lady <laughs> of Perpetual Praise songs. That's like <laughs> extremely ironic. I'm looking forward to that. That's gonna be great. Same. Um, thanks. Thanks for these, Dean. I do have I have actually one for you as well. I thought we could uh, I, I want to come back with a gang, a game because uh, you got one over on me. And now I feel like I really need to get back at you about this. Sure. Um, so here's here's a similar game. It's not it's not a uh, pastor. I hardly knew her, but it is uh, it's called Two Albums and a Lie. And okay. this is a game where I'm going to read you three album titles and two of them are real Hillsong album titles and one of them is not and you have to guess which one is not right you have right. to guess the pretender okay so the album titles are this I, I went back to find some of the the more niche ones though so that'd be a little more interesting um okay anyways the album titles are God is in the house friends in high places and for the glory sorry what was the first one God is in the house oh I think you said blood is in the house um that would be wild that is the album that you get from Our Lady of Perpetual Praise songs, for sure. That's the Eucharistic <laughs> album. Uh, I'm going to say Friends in High Places has got to be the fake. Oh, I'm so sorry. Nope, that is a, a 1996 Hillsong album. Uh, wow. the, uh, the pretender here is For the Glory, which is, as everybody knows except you, <laughs> an OC Supertones album from 2012. So I'm so <laughs> sure. sorry. I mean, they could have overlap, I think. But uh, the uh, the title Friends in High Places from 1996 is amazing. Because it does yeah, have more of an, an apologetics kind of vibe, I guess. Uh, they're really parodying the culture out there. I know, I know. It really is. Um, all right, folks. Well, we've got the games out of the way. That's the most important part of the podcast, um, uh, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, okay. So out there in the popular in popular culture, there's a lot of like um, big evangelical churches who are contributing vastly to Christian culture. And then one of the biggest and most influential of them is Hillsong Church, or it was. It's not anymore. It's pretty infamously bad now. Uh, Hillsong it's hard to is say. Well, the- sorry to yeah. contradict you no. right away, but I think uh, you're probably right about Hillsong Church in New York. But it strikes me that Hillsong Ministries, at least for now, like still going strong, or at least people are not cyberbullying them on the internet. I feel like that's kind of the key. That's true. Um, maybe not altogether bad, but at least the the, the uh, in New York it changed their name. In Kansas City, they changed their name. I know a lot of the Hillsong churches in the United States right. they've they've gone through some rebrands. So right. I, I'm a bit fair enough. Um, all that being said, though, Hillsong is back in the Christian discourse. It's back on the tips of everyone's tongues because of the release of a new-ish documentary called "The Secrets of Hillsong." Uh, the documentary itself has four parts. The first two. Fo- mostly focus on the U.S. Hillsong locations, uh, especially in New York and uh, around the celebrity pastor and sneakerhead Carl Lentz. Um, The second two episodes uh, feature the father and son pastor duo from Australia, I guess from New Zealand and Australia, Frank and Brian Houston, two extremely yucky guys. Um, I don't like them whatsoever. Overall, the documentary uh, highlights the culture of abuse and cover up that appears to be like a systemic part of the Hillsong story. But evangelical documentaries have been kind of on the rise lately in they're like an interesting cultural phenomenon that I think has been popping up kind of left and right. Uh, there's a lot of current interest in the spectacle of evangelical gossip, right? You got um, the uh, the new Hillsong documentary, uh, The Secrets of Hillsong, but then there's also another one that previously came out called Hillsong, a megachurch exposed. And then, um, of course, you've probably heard of, too, the uh, the the documentary about the Duggars, shiny, happy people that was on um, Amazon. So uh, a lot of these, um, I don't know, docu-series are coming out kind of detailing the, I don't know, evangelical gossip, but also like the ways that evangelicalism has like, I think, hurt people and um, <laughs> and uh, covered up abuse uh, through all kinds of really uh, gross systems. Uh, so anyways, in this episode, we're going to maybe intervene in that intervention. <laughs> I mean, you know, like those interve- those uh, docu-series in the first place are interventions into the evangelical story, right? They're always kind of popping up trying to tell you that, uh, that evangelicalism has a lot of problems and you should be aware of them. Um, but now we're going to intervene on that intervention and tell you uh, maybe like a take on them um, or, or what the deeper story is with evangelicalism and, and why... Um, these documentaries are interesting in the first place, but also kind of like why they're part of the problem. Yeah, exactly. 
And I think, you know, uh, it's interesting to consider why they're, this content is like having a, a moment or sort of a surge. And some of the reasons are probably obvious. I don't know if you're a, if you're one of our handful of Catholic listeners that's like, I have no idea what you're talking about when you talk about evangelicalism. I guess this will be some interesting viewing material for you. Uh, if you were part of evangelicalism, it's probably no surprise why people are interested interested in it. Um, but why don't we just take the the reasoning from a uh, an Amazon TV executive himself who I think sheds a little bit of light on this. So the big question is, you know, why is there such a huge interest in these evangelical hypocrisy stories or falls from grace? So Amazon previously made this uh, popular series on the LuLaRoe pyramid scheme. And I don't know, it was like a big success, I guess. I didn't watch it. I think my wife watched it. But it prompted uh, Amazon's interest in evangelicalism. And in an article for Variety that was published pretty recently, The Amazon TV chief, Vernon Sanders, explains that in doing the research for the LuLaRoe documentary, we understood that there was a big community of people who participated as sellers of that product, but also bought the product, a big cross-section of people who would be intrigued to learn more. So with that success, we started to look for things that may have similar attributes, a big community of people who may have an interest in a topic personally and through following the media, and so they made shiny happy people about the Duggars, which uh, the Duggars, if you've never heard of them, they are one of the Quiverful families. They have a ton of kids. They were the uh, subject of the 19 Kids Accounting TV show. Um, That show or that documentary, Shiny Happy People, about them is one of the most watched docuseries on Amazon ever. So it was a huge success, which means you'll probably also see more content like that, I would guess, down the pipe. But I think it's really interesting what he says, the 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 question about why evangelicalism kind of arises because of the success of a docuseries about a pyramid scheme, first of all, which I think is very funny because uh, evangelicalism is the pyramid scheme of Christianity. You know, uh, you get saved, you tell three people that they get saved and so on and so forth. It's a, a pyramid scheme model. Um, but <laughs> there's there's also this kind of Interesting way that the uh, the executives are cashing in on, I think, a lot of different trends. Basically, the, the deconstruction market niche, right? Like um, people who would have been in the thick of evangelical culture, the high point of evangelical culture, maybe in the 90s and mid-2000s. They're all millennials now who are becoming in adults and thinking critically about their childhoods and so on. And I think that there, you know, the the market research is tapping into the fact that there is a, a huge spectrum of folks who are maybe watching out of curiosity for their own kind of lives, maybe watching out of a revenge fantasy or something, or just wanting to kind of better understand what's going on. You know, probably there's some stuff too in there about like how evangelicalism comes into the news during things like the Donald Trump election. But all that to say, I think it's really fascinating that uh producers of media are sort of discovering that there's there's a market for content about evangelical hypocrisy. And I think that is a, a pretty interesting way to prompt the creation of this media. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I mean, I don't want to, we can talk more about psychoanalysis and stuff later, because we definitely will. But um, uh, I guess we can, we can mention it here. But to me, there's something like, you know, kind of psychoana- psychoanalytic driving this, right? Like there's... Um, the sense in which uh, TV producers know that people have been harmed or wronged, or even if they haven't been directly, maybe feel this like overarching feeling of harm from evangelical communities like Hillsong or any other church, like the, I don't know, like the Duggars. Um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not hard to find a uh, disaffected millennial who has been hurt by the evangelical church. Pretty easy, right? It's like a, it's like, it's a thing that maybe we all feel in one way or the other. Um, but anyways, it's interesting to see like a TV producer kind of capitalizing on that, um, on that sense of like hurt or maybe not even hurt, but just like, um, disaffection mm-hmm. and then creating media that particularly plays into the fantasy of like getting one over on the people that hurt you. And right. I'm not saying like, that's why everyone's watching the show, but that is definitely why I was watching the show. <laughs> so maybe I'm just speaking biographically here, but anyways, it's, it's interesting. Um, capitalism, it, uh, it loves to play on your fantasies, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, as we'll talk about later, there is a lot to, um, maybe bring into a critical conversation around it, like how we're telling the story of evangelicalism or how we're pulling one over 
on evangelicalism makes a yeah. big difference or, or how we're not <laughs> pulling one over on evangelicalism in the end. And, you know, we've talked about a handful of these themes in the past. Like we've done episodes on deconstruction in the past. We've done episodes on evangelicalism in the past. But I think that the this sort of cultural moment is really bringing a lot of those themes to a head. Like there is a distinct interest in telling the story as a story of uh, scandal, which I think is pretty big. Um, you know, my my wife and I watched it. And one thing we were talking about is that it's funny because like part of the satisfaction of watching it is that it just feels like watching church gossip for four hours, you know, and like yeah. who doesn't like a good gossip story like we all do. Um, the Bible says whatever it says, we all, we all love it. <laughs> and that, that is what it is. And I think that there's, you know, there's even some value in that. Like it can be a sort of cathartic experience to, to go through. Um, but it does raise questions also about like, what's the media for? What is it actually accomplishing? Um, are we pulling one over on the evangelicals or not? Yeah, exactly. Like, does it really hurt them for people to know this or does it somehow bolster them? And I think the question, the answer to that is kind of interesting, actually. Um, before we go any further, though, do we need to talk about like what happened in the documentary? Whatsoever? Yeah, I guess or so. Can we just, <laughs> I mean, we don't need to get into like the into the weeds about the whole thing, I think, because if you feel I mean, be, because they're not really outstanding in any way. I think that like what happened at Hillsong is what happens at mega churches and evangelical churches across the world. Um, there's like a celebrity pastor who gets a little too big for his britches. Uh, he is like, you know, everyone's favorite guy. Everyone thinks he's really great. And then there's a fall from grace when he ends up cheating on his wife. Right. Like that's the story of, of Hillsong in New York, at least. Um, and there's, I think, some nuance to that story that makes it more interesting than not. But still, I mean, that's the overarching story. And then, um, you know, it tries to get covered up, but doesn't really work out. And that ends up being like a feature of Hillsong um, in in Australia and in New Zealand, um, that there are these uh, two other pastors uh, who are involved kind of tangentially, Frank Houston and Brian Houston, the person who founded Hillsong in Australia. Uh, who have also been uh, involved in um, sexual abuse, uh, especially of children in the case of Frank Houston, and then like um, uh, more affairs and cover up in the case of Brian Houston. So what you have is, um, you know, kind of this uh, pattern of celebrity-ish pastors, maybe just celebrity pastors is the wrong word, but pastors who are extremely popular in their communities and, and exercise um, a pretty extreme amount of control over their communities who then have these giant fall from graces grace because of like a, um, you know, an affair or an abuse that they um, have undertaken. Uh, the Brian Houston story though, is uh, particularly interesting because uh, the, well, I guess the big scandal is whether or not he knew about his father's abuse, um, you know, beforehand while it was happening that he could have reported it. He argues uh, that he didn't uh, though. There's an ongoing court case that will be wrapped up in the next few weeks that argue that he didn't know. So we'll find out, I guess, what happened there. But I don't know. Uh, is there any more of the story that I think that we need to say to kind of set the, up, set up the conversation, Dean? Yeah, maybe a few details. So, like, uh, I mean, you got all the, the journalistic facts there correct, I think. Um, and if you, if a person has never heard of Hillsong, it might be worth just even explaining a little bit more about the, the cultural phenomenon. Oh, yeah. So, it, like... Hillsong is interesting because it is many different things. It is a college in Australia. It is a massive record label, basically like a music producing machine, um, also based in Australia. It is a series of churches linked to get together that come out of an Assemblies of God denomination or Pentecostalism some way or other. And it's especially interesting for evangelicals because the Hillsong media machine or cultural machine basically exports itself all over the world. And so whether or not you go to a Hillsong branded church, you end up hearing Hillsong music. And chances are, if you've ever turned on your radio and you're listening to like the CCM Christian contemporary music station, you've heard a Hillsong song before in your life. They are kind of designed to be earworms, but also to create these transcendent experiences or kind of emotional experiences. And so people also get very attached to the the songs and music. And it's interesting the way that Hillsong has almost like created a, a sort of out of the box experience of church that it exports everywhere. And in New York City, the particular Hillsong church that Carl Lentz, the pastor was pastoring, um, that church was drawing in, you know, whatever, like hundreds of thousands of people, um, 
It was a kind of gravity well for celebrities who were thinking about Christianity. So like I said earlier, Justin Bieber, Kevin Durant, lots of other folks as well kind of came into the orbit of Carl Lentz. So there's this cultural product, a mass-produced form of worship, but there's also this attachment to popular culture. So there's all these bridges where, like, Hillsong is, like, you know, trying, like, transparently trying to be cool church. Cool church for cool people. Uh, This isn't your grandpa's Assemblies of God church. This is a hip church (laughs) where you can think about prophecy, you can figure out what God is doing in your life, you can listen to Carl Lentz, a guy wearing great sneakers on stage, talk to you about this or that before you hear the next sort of radio hit uh, coming out of Australia. So there's like a whole cultural machine involved. And I think, too, it, it maybe is helpful to point out that in the sort of Hillsong um, global apparatus, the uh, the the kind of project of Hillsong is intentionally international. So there's this maybe anchor church in New York City. There are also a bunch of other church in, churches in the United States as well. But it was uh, strange to kind of learn more about how Hillsong also, they're like doing tours in Indonesia or, you know, kind of going around different countries. There's a kind of missional aspect to it or evangelistic aspect to it that all rides on the kind of cultural production that's happening in Australia. So there's a kind of like, you know, if you want to think about it in a materialist way, and we can talk about this more later, but it's kind of a theological and cultural imperialist project in many respects. It's trying to sort of colonize people's experience of Christianity on purpose. Like it's doing it, you know, without really beating around the bush about that. <laughs> I think that's the goal. And uh, the the term that I've been using to describe it to people is, I feel like it's the McDonaldization of Christianity. It's like, you yeah. can go to a McDonald's in, you know, the Midwest in the United States, you can get your Big Mac, but you can also go to McDonald's before you visit, like, I don't know, the Louvre in Paris and also get a Big Mac, right? And that's kind of the draw of McDonald's. Like, maybe you get a a special um, France-flavored McDonald's every once in a while, and that's kind of exciting. But at the end of the day, you go because you know <laughs> what you're getting. And it's the same with Hillsong. So just to fill out some more of the, the cultural background. Oh, maybe one other piece that is important is uh, Carl, the pastor who fell from grace or whatever, uh, cheated on his wife, etc. He is interesting because he kind of embodies like each piece of Hillsong in, in one way or other. So he's the pastor of this mm. megachurch, but he had gone to Australia and studied at the Hillsong College that's there which is trying to form people to be pastors or worship leaders or music people or whatever they do. And so he came from the U.S., went to Australia, got trained there, um, was sort of ingratiated into the upper echelons of Hillsong royalty, like uh, Brian Houston, the the founder of Hillsong, and then returns to the United States to plant a Hillsong church and becomes sort of the vector of, like, you know, testing out all these different uh, cultural products from Australia. So... The fact that he becomes the the celebrity pastor and then also becomes, you know, the the prime sort of example of the the challenges that that model produces or the abuse and so on that it produces, um, that I think is really significant. And uh, one last thing about the documentary. So the documentary, The Secrets of Hillsong, is kind of like two parts. The first part is talking to you about Carl Lentz and his life and his, um, you know, what he what he did, his choices, etc., and then the second half or the second two episodes are more about Australia and kind of Frank and Brian Houston and what's going on there. And I think there's probably a lot to say, probably things that could be said better by other people about how the documentary handles even Carl Lentz. Like it, uh, it presents him in a way that is somewhat sympathetic or maybe yeah. empathetic um, in ways that I actually didn't mind seeing. <laughs> we can talk more about the the character of Carl Lentz maybe later later. Um, but, uh, the, the back half, um, does some interesting things with what's going on in Hillsong, but I think also backs off some of the, the deeper probing questions. So that's kind of what prompted Matt and I to do the episode is to be like, there's, uh, some interesting stuff happening in the documentary, but also some missed opportunities. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's, maybe that's a good way into the conversation, right? Because when it comes to like Brian Houston, right, who is like the founder of Hillsong, um, his story is not sympathetic in the least. Uh, right. and I think that like his character is actually a really good expression of like the, 
<laughs> the id of evangelicalism or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone who is really not interested in Christianity as such, but is more interested in like the uh, desire for control and sort of like more fascistic types of desire and so on. Whereas Carl Lentz, they do frame him as this like kind of just like goofy guy who made some bad choices and like, you know, is is sympathetic and more relatable in some other ways, which I actually, yeah, which I, I don't know how I actually feel about. Um, you, you know, it's whatever. The documentary made some choices to kind of follow up with him. And Carl Lentz made some choices, too, uh, in ways that Brian um, Houston didn't. Right. Brian Houston refused to talk to the documentary, uh, whereas Carl Lentz appeared on camera and kind of gave everyone a weird life update for him and stuff. <laughs> but um, I, I don't know. I guess, you know, when you're laying all that stuff out there, though, it, it kind of um, <laughs> they seem like they seem like two different sides of maybe the same coin. But Carl mm-hmm. Carl Lentz feels a bit more like a person than uh, Brian Houston does. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the the way that Carl comes off in general, I think, and this is something we talked about before we were recording this episode. He he really seems to me like a person who has always been an undergraduate at an evangelical university, even after graduating. Like that's the vibe that he gives off. <laughs> like mm-hmm. he's always kind of twenty years old and trying to figure out how to be the best Christian he can possibly be, and you know, within reason, right? (laughs) Like, and what I mean by that too is when you're an undergraduate at an evangelical university, that's like one side you're trying to be a good Christian and the other side is like, you also want to have sex with your girlfriend and that's like part of it, you know? (laughs) It's like that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, So I feel like that's kind of Carl's uh, trajectory is that he never really grows out of that phase in the way that, you know, other evangelicals might. And I think what's really interesting about the way that he's portrayed in the documentary and the reason I think he's sympathetic is that you almost get the sense that Carl is kind of, you know, he's also victimized by the apparatus of Hillsong. Like he's a very young person when he gets sucked into it and he kind of like probably couldn't have done something different. I mean, maybe he could have, I don't know. But the, the, the big thing about it, I guess, is like, the huge scandal is that he cheats on his wife, which is, you know, a bad thing. Like, I don't think people should cheat on their spouses, but also not that surprising. (laughs) Like, and in the grand scheme of things you could do that are bad, uh, cheating on your spouse is bad, but it's not as bad as, you know, what Brian Houston does, which is, uh, many, many degrees worse than that. So it's, it's interesting for that reason too, that you kind of get the sense that, uh, Carl Lentz is just doing what every evangelical does from the time they're like 18 to 22, which is to say not really know what to do about their, you know, how to reconcile their like extremely high demand for their um, Christian piety with their like carnal desires. And then the fact that you're kind of constantly denying them makes you like act out on them in some really bizarre ways. So yeah, all that to say, like, I don't know, maybe that's why I feel like he's kind of sympathetic, because at a time in my life, I probably would have, like, very much understood the kind of tensions that he was ultimately failing to navigate. So just a really bizarre um, character, but maybe not a wholly um, unrealistic one either, or, like, unsympathetic one. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I think I think so much so much of that, too, comes through because he does choose to talk to the documentary, the documentarians where Brian doesn't. Like, you know, in the at the very end of the first episode, uh, Carl Lentz shows up on screen. And then in the second episode, you get to hear about like what he's doing. Like he's living in Florida and he's like working at a a marketing agency. And, you know, like, okay, I don't know. He gets he gets to kind of like share more of like what's going on where Brian is like still embroiled in like a legal scandal in Mm -hmm. in Australia. So he doesn't talk, which uh, makes sense. He doesn't comment, which makes sense. Um, Not I don't know. All I'm trying to say here is that like. Carl is presenting himself in a really particular way that I think is <laughs> kind of like a get out of jail free card in some true, ways. That's but true. Of course. I don't, yeah. I, all I'm trying to say is I don't want to let him off the hook um, yes. for anything. <laughs> yes, that's right. And I, yeah, I think you're right. I'm, I'm maybe, maybe I'm even painting it a little too sympathetic because, you know, it's not like he, uh, like there's a lot of other interesting stuff in it. Like he, the way he handles Black Lives Matter is <laughs> extremely funny yeah. and like very bizarre um and in the documentary he feels completely unrepentant about it apparently um sticks up for the way he handled it uh which is juxtaposed to a variety of people at the church that they interview (laughs) tell a different story about it um so yeah it's not like he was like just this you know an innocent lamb who kind of becomes the the sacrificial uh character or something but i guess all i'm trying to say is like you know (laughs) uh carl lentz um 
he uh, he did a lot of bad things, but like I've seen worse. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Totally. I think that's true. And and I think also, I mean, I don't there's in, in no sense do you have to hand it to him, but he is like going to therapy <laughs> and like kind of like dealing yeah, with yeah. some of these things, too. So yeah, it's different. Right. Dean, you've got a whole bunch of other like, I think, really interesting things to say about the documentary that I want to get to in a minute. But I do want to talk to you. I, I want to talk about the. Um, the phenomenon of like watching this for a minute. Cause I think that's actually kind of an important part of the story and mm-hmm. maybe an important part of like what we're doing in this episode is like, why is it that why, why do these stories like really appeal to people or like what do they do for us when we're watching them? And um, I want to ask you why you watched it in the first place in a minute. But I think like <laughs> the assumption I'm bringing to the conversation here is um, maybe a more of like a critical lens and maybe one that's like, it relies probably too much on psychoanalysis. But um, you know, I think that there's like a sense in which like people come. Oh, okay. Hang on. Let me, let me take three steps back. So there's this, like, there's this insight from a philosopher who I, I loathe to even name on our podcast uh, named Slava Zizek, uh, who is a <laughs> Slovenian, um, Marxist Hegelian psychoanalysis kind of guy. If you've been on the internet, you've seen him. Um, I don't like him for a lot of different reasons. Uh, mostly because he's kind of a creep. But uh, anyways, he has this insight that I think is is uh, self plagiarized in every one every book that he writes <laughs> um, about uh, canned laughter. About you know a show uh, when you're watching I Love Lucy or Friends or whatever, and the TV is laughing for you. Um, and then, and then how that produces a type of catharsis in, in your life, right? The, you're tired, you're, you've been working, you know, all day long and now you're home watching friends and Ross, he's making a big joke about paleontology or something. And then the TV laughs for you. And in that moment, you're feeling like relief, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to laugh because the, the show is laughing for you. And, um, I think that like TV functions in that sort of like, uh, that realm of, fantasy and like doing things for you uh in ways that we don't necessarily recognize a lot of times like for here's another example here's a here's an um an unrealized like uh popular culture piece that I've, that I've never written but um there was a time in my life where I was really excited about the show Sherlock uh with Benedict Cumberbatch and <laughs> uh the other guy who's also in the Hobbit whose name I can't remember um <laughs> Anyways, uh, that show is really interesting to me because I think it does something really similar um, in that it gives you um, it it presents to you a a Sherlock Holmes mystery that is for you, the viewer, impossible to solve. Like you could never (laughs) just like watch the setup of a show of Sherlock and be like, oh, I know who did this one because it's like impossible. You couldn't. It's it's like something that's like completely outlandish and wacky and wild. And only through Sherlock's like mind palace and like deductive skills do you get to learn what the answer to the to the mystery is. And, you know, when you see Sherlock Holmes solve the mystery, you yourself become like, oh, man, I got it. Just alongside Sherlock, (laughs) you know, I also realize the mystery. So, you know, in the way that uh, canned laughter is like making you feel cathartic and like good about a funny TV show. Uh, Sherlock Holmes solving a mystery makes you feel really smart about a TV show. Um, but you know, in both, in both cases, it's completely fantasy because you're not laughing and you're not solving the mystery and it's making you feel, (laughs) but it's making you feel great, right? You're getting enjoyment out of it. Right. And I think there's something actually really similar going on in this show. And I'm uh, right now I'll say, I'm just speaking for myself. And if anyone else feels similarly, that's great. And you can jump on the bandwagon, but I don't want to speak for anybody in this case, but like I was watching the show and I was like really kind of excited to watch it because it was like um, it's, you know, it's we all know um, people, millennials, people like me. I know, I guess, I guess if I'm talking for myself, I, I know that uh, evangelicals, they're full of hypocrisy. They are um, people who um, who preach love and acceptance and all kinds of things like that, but really function out of places of hate and fear and um I love to see like those people fall from grace. I love to see that because it's like uh, someone who I think I feel some kind of like, um, you know, uh, some type of like hurt from people who have like uh, come out against me (laughs) in my life in one way or another, like to see them also struggle is like good. Right. In like a, in a bad kind of way. It's like watching somebody who it's watching something bad happen to your enemies. And like, that is, I think a desire. I think I have to like work through a lot in my life, but um it's definitely like the thing that I thought about most when I was watching the show is like, isn't it finally great to watch these people who I know are bad, like 
get outed on uh, <laughs> on a big Hulu documentary. Isn't that cool? And uh, I, anyways, all of that's to say, I think that it functions in the same way it does on Sherlock or on Friends, where it's like um, it's re- somebody doing revenge for me. And uh, maybe I'm <laughs> in this in this moment, I'm recognizing that. <laughs> um, but anyways, that's that's at least part of like the appeal to the show. Uh, uh, that's part of the appeal of the show to me. It was just that, like, it's finally somebody getting their due who I don't like. And uh, that was really compelling. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, I would probably not watch any of these things if it weren't for my wife because she is uh, very interested in parsing out these parts of her life because she probably is a healthier person than me. <laughs> I prefer to forget they ever <laughs> happened or <laughs> move beyond them or whatever. Um, and uh, I'm always glad when I do because there, there's always something more interesting going on in those stories too than what you initially think. Like, I guess I always sit down and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm going to, like, see these people be annoying and dumb, and I'll just be mad about it. And, I, like, I don't want to feel that way because I, I have better things to, to feel <laughs> in my life. Um, but uh, every time I do end up watching it, um, like this or Shiny Happy People or something else, you really do get a sense of uh, maybe more of the mechanisms of um, power and control that not only are part of the these stories but also have been part of you if you've participated in an evangelical situation and probably others too. I mean, some of these are transferable ideological skills between (laughs) faith traditions and otherwise, but I think that's true, Matt. Like, you know, I like to think that, Oh, I'm watching it for some deeper meaning or like, I'm going to (laughs) really, really like figure something out here. But in reality, it is exactly what you're saying. It's like at the end of the day, I just want to see like bad people um, be put on TV in such a way that the TV says that they're bad. And I'm like, aha, I knew they were bad the whole time. And now, (laughs) now everyone else does too. And that's great. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, um, I'm feeling a little bit embarrassed for being so vulnerable about this podcast about telling you exactly how much I hate <laughs> these people and how I like to see them like dragged out. <laughs> I, I guess all I'm, all I'm trying to say here is I fully recognize like that's like a character flaw of myself. That's something I need to figure out. But anyways, I think that it's you know what it reminds me of actually is a uh, what's that place in Nietzsche where he talks about how Thomas Aquinas has that vision of. Uh, the the elect will enjoy watching the damned burn in hell. Um, oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know the satisfying their desire for divine justice or whatever. And like, yeah, Nietzsche is like, what a completely pathological thing to think. <laughs> it's true, but <laughs> guess what? It's there. It's there in all of us. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I think so. I, all I'm trying to say is I, I can't imagine I'm the only person feeling that way. Um, <laughs> no. But something I was thinking of, you know, as I was reflecting on these feelings in me, this is okay. So that that was my basis desires. Now here's um, here's my growth my growth phase, my growth <laughs> era that I'm in. Uh, I was thinking through that particular like feeling I was having, and I thought immediately to Tad Delay because whenever I think about psychoanalysis mm-hmm. and my own deep feelings, I always think about Tad Delay's book. Uh, in case you don't know what I'm talking about, right off the bat here, Tad Delay. He wrote a book a few years ago, maybe two years ago now. It's called Against What the White Evangelical Wants, and um, there's uh, a there's a whole bunch of stuff in there that I think is really useful, but there's a section in there about persecution complexes within evangelical Christianity and how like that functions in your brain at the level of desire, you know, coming from like a, maybe a, a Lacanian psychoanalytic tradition. And if you don't know what Lacanian psychoanalysis is, don't stress. I don't really know what it is either. Um, maybe a little bit, but anyways, there's this part in the book that Tad, uh, parses out that I think is really cool. Um, where he's like kind of reflecting on the liberal answer to or, or maybe the, the liberal um, comportment or like attitude towards evangelicalism. And I, I'll read this piece here and, and maybe we can talk about it a little bit. Tad writes, do they not grasp the notion of hypocrisy? Talking about evangelicals here, not necessarily Hillsong, but evangelicals in large. Do they not grasp the notion of hypocrisy? Why the praise for charlatans? How could they not accept evolutionary or climate science? Why do they mock expertise and defund education? How could anyone inflict their children with conversion therapy? Why do they find the widely popular act of sex a threat? Whence comes the desire for fascism? To each of these questions, my response is a complicated historization of problems impossible to analyze in the abstract. The apparent contradictions are networked, reinforced, and doing precisely what they are designed to do. The reactionary liberal's fantasy supposes conservatives are dupes or in need of education. This deep miscalculation on the part of the liberal misses the point, and liberalism will not save us. Sadism and masochism invigorate a destruction machine resonating with neoconservative militarism and neoliberal economics. 
and such invigoration cannot be resolved by fact checking. I like this piece here because I think it's like <laughs> it's, a, it's a moment where you can kind of check yourself with some of this. And it's like, you know, you're you're wanting bad things to happen to people. And while you're watching all of this unfold in a documentary, you can be like, well, how did all these people who go to Hillsong in the first place do this? Right. Like they've got to know that um, that that Carl Lentz, um, you know, a, a millionaire preacher is not a good person. Like they have to know that he's actually fake. They have to know that um, that Brian Houston is actually like a sexual predator. Like how can people fall for this? Right. And I think that the instructive point here is that um, conservatives, evangelicals, they're not being duped into this, right? The, that, that, um, that they are, like, that the people who are leading them are, are involved or invested in, in power, in, in the desire for more power, is not like, you know, it's what, it, maybe it's like what's covered up, but it's not like um, people don't realize that or something. And it's, in fact, what they want. Um, within evangelicalism, gaining power is like the whole point and exercising that power brutally is the whole point. So I guess like um, this, this thing from Tad here is helpful because, you know, if we're asking the question or if we're, if we're searching for like feelings of superiority or like, how are these people tricked? I think it's kind of the wrong way to approach these types of stories about evangelicalism because it's not really people being tricked. It's like, this is the way that it works. And, and people on some level enjoy that enjoy the cruelty of it all they enjoy the power in it they enjoy having like a figure over them who has some type of like you know um fascistic type of role in their life uh of a pastor and i think that is maybe the the deeper story here that goes untold in uh in stories like you know um hillsong or in stories about the duggars right it's 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 not that um the scandal is not the cruelty or control or sort of like you know, um, big fascist pastor in a church, like that's the draw instead. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think that's the important thing that even the documentary misses because the story is told and not just this documentary, basically every documentary I've ever watched (laughs) about evangelicalism, the story that's told is like these people claim that they're following Jesus Christ. Uh, a thing that documentaries always assume is kind of self-evident like, yeah, oh, Jesus, he loves everybody. So, of course, these pastors should also love everybody. And guess what? They didn't or they don't. And uh, that's the the whole conceit of it. And I think, you know, these these documentaries, that's ultimately the point they want to make. And so all the evidence that they marshal is kind of in service of saying, like, look at these bad hypocrites. If they were really following Jesus, they wouldn't do this. But the strange thing is the next natural question is, OK, if they're not following Jesus the way that we think Jesus should be followed or whatever, then what are they doing? And the conclusion the documentaries leave you with is like, well, they're just following their own selfish interests, which is like partly true. Uh, Yeah. There's a, there's a kind of Machiavellian uh, reality to these kind of church politics. That's all accurate. But the harder and more important question is like, what's the deeper reason that actually doesn't make these things hypocritical at all, but makes them consistent, like makes them yes. (laughs) part of being faithful to the tradition is that you would be this kind of person. You would have these kinds of ambitions. You would politic in this way. Uh, It's something you see in the shiny happy people documentary, for example, where they probably actually do a better job than the secrets of fail song. Um, They do tell you a little bit about the kind of, um, theological world the Duggars live in where there is a bit of a, you know, there's this hierarchy of like the dad is on the top, there's this big dad umbrella and then underneath that is kind <laughs> of the family umbrella and underneath that is the the kids and you kind of go up the chain of authority and so naturally Jim Bob Duggar he ends up, you know, exploiting his own children for personal gain and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, like Jim Bob Duggar is not like a kind of secular maniac who is just using Christianity to his own ends. Like it's part of his Christianity to exploit his children. (laughs) Like that's what's important. And I think it's the same with Hillsong in a way that the documentary kind of like gets close to, but steps back from at the end because uh, they try to tell you a little bit about some of Brian Houston's theology, some of the assemblies of God stuff, some prosperity gospel stuff, but they can't really sort of figure out the point that Tad makes, which is that, you know, these are uh, all part of the same theological worldview. And in fact, like making wrong choices is part of it. (laughs) Like uh, 
abusing other people is part of it. Forgiveness is part of it or not forgiving someone is part of it. You know, it's it's not just hypocrisy. It's like there's a whole theological world in which um, cheating on your wife and then also expecting to still be a pastor makes complete sense. Or like, you know, uh, having a, a kind of abusive model of um, getting like volunteers to do a ton of work on a Sunday that's totally unpaid labor and incredibly exhausting. Like, of course, that makes sense in Christianity. Like, that's not hypocritical. That's just part of it. <laughs> so, you know, that's the the one thing that these documentaries can't penetrate is like, what is the the Christian motivation that makes these bad habits legible? And I think, I don't know, we just need somebody to figure that out. And <laughs> Tad gets us there in a psychoanalytic way. Um, we need a, a Marxist also to, to maybe continue that story in a, an economic way too. Yeah. Yeah. One, before we get to the Marxist point, I think, cause that's, it's a good one. Uh, just, just as like a quick aside, maybe not an aside, but like the place that Tad delay ends up going is that like, turmoil and anxiety are really important parts of Christianity and to feel like you're under attack from the world means that you're doing it right, that you're being faithful. Right. So like, that's kind of like the, the end there. And and that's how a lot of this makes sense is that, um, you know, the persecution that uh, Brian Houston is, is facing even now in Australia is like emboldening him as like a person of faith, right? He's not questioning his faith because of it. He's not having like a Job moment where he's asking God to kill him or something. He's probably he's feeling like this is all good. This is what happens to people who are who are godly in in some way, right? Mm-hmm. They get persecuted, and and that's that's just the way it works. If you're being persecuted, if you're feeling this anxiety, if you're feeling this turmoil in the world, that means that you're doing what's faithful, and like that's kind of what's at the at the heart of the matter. And uh, that's what makes I think evangelicalism like you know fundamentally fascistic, right? <laughs> is that you uh, is that you have to feel this anxiety? There's no sense of like resolution. There's no sense of harmony or peace. It's just like all all tough all the time, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, the other thing that's strange about that too is uh, it, it's what makes maybe Carl a more sympathetic character in the end because for all his faults, he did say, you know, he came clean at a certain point. I mean, not just Mm -hmm. voluntarily, like he was compelled to, but he did ultimately divulge even more than he had to. And I think he had this moment of being like, if I'm going to be an authentic Christian, then I guess I just have to get it all out on the table so that I can deal with it, you know? And that's the thing that Brian Houston doesn't do. Like, he is defending at every turn, refusing to really admit his complicity in what's going on is essentially incapable of understanding the system as an abusive system and on the contrary wants to uphold it and to say like I've always done whatever I'm supposed to do in order to you know make it work and I think that's also the the strange piece about it is you might also conclude in the documentary that Carl is striving to be a better Christian than Brian Houston which is like maybe true in a certain sense like maybe maybe Carl Lentz is like more capable of having an introspective relationship to that question than Brian Houston. But the, the more interesting way of putting it, I think is that Brian Houston is just continuing to be a Christian in a different way. <laughs> That's what's yeah. more important. His Christianity relies on not having that introspective piece of it. And like, that's not hypocritical. That's just uh, part of the machine working the way that it, it ought to work. Totally. I mean, I mean, you can imagine, right. Carl Lentz at this new church in Oklahoma, preaching a thousand sermons about his fall from grace, right? Like it's just going to become a part of it, right? The, the, uh, the persecution narrative, the, uh, you know, I, uh, I was at the very top and then I was brought very low and now I'm back here. Like that's going to, it's just going to be all used as credibility for his, his <laughs> ministry, which I think is actually really bad and <laughs> toxic. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. Uh, well, all right. We've got about 10 minutes left. Maybe we can pivot a little bit more to what, I think we need in terms of an analysis of evangelicalism and we can figure out some other avenues there. You know, I, I said, uh, Tad does the psychoanalytic piece. He does use Marx too. So I'm, um, you know, maybe just, uh, saying we need more people to get their hands on the ball when it comes to providing a, a material analysis of evangelicalism. Um, I made some tweets about it a while back and I thought we could talk through some of it. You know, there's, there's not really a material, materialist analysis of global evangelicalism in part because it would probably be like an impossibly monumental task. Like you'd have to track money flows that are super opaque and hard to, to kind of track. Um, You'd have to determine like the exact mechanisms of exploitation that happen in evangelicalism. You'd have to 
identify transnational relationships and political forms and all that kind of stuff. But I think you actually have to do that to understand evangelicalism because it's not fundamentally a, uh, you know, a private faith tradition. It is fundamentally public. Like evangelicalism is always politically expressed and always has moneyed interests. And I think that's the thing that these documentaries are always gesturing toward. Like they can point out, look how much money Hillsong is making, but they can't tell you necessarily how or why. And ultimately that's not really the point of the documentary. You know, the point is to use that to shore up the, the other point about hypocrisy. So I don't know, Matt, if we were going to do a materialist analysis of global evangelicalism, what what would we have to do to get there? Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, we would need like the uh, someone to, ha- to hack the mainframe or whatever <laughs> to tell us where the money is coming from and going. But I mean, it's true. The documentary does gesture towards that. Like at the in the very beginning, they say something like, you know, Hillsong is making millions every week. Like Hillsong New York is making millions every week from, um, you know, tithing and donations and it's largely untaxed money and where's it going? And that's a great question. Um, what's it paying for, you know, and like a lot of the answers to those questions would be really boring things. Like it's going to Carl Lentz's like probably big salary or something. Um, sneaker I think the other, yeah, his sneaker budget, then maybe other thing that'd be really revealing is, you know, where is it not going? Like, what are all of the, um, what are, what's all the unpaid work that's like off the books, <laughs> going on in that church you know like who's doing what and like it, a, a big part of it too i think the the most interesting piece of this would actually be to see like a political economy of like the hillsong music section only just mm-hmm. to be like you know who who is writing all of these songs how much are they getting paid for it there's one point in the documentary i think it was in the the last episode but now i can't quite remember where there's um someone from hillsong i think hillsong college in australia who is like getting ready to go on tour with the Hillsong band. And then all of a sudden uh, they can't go on tour for a reason. I can't re- quite recall. That's not the important part of the story, but the important part of the story was that they said that there was like, you know, $180 uh, as like a day rate as a musician for a mm-hmm. Hillsong uh, musician, which is not very much money for someone who's, <laughs> you know, pumping out <laughs> albums and like contributing to those. Right. If, if you're paying, if you're getting paid $180 as a day rate to um, uh, record an album, it's just, it's just not very much. That's all I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's like, that's $22 an hour. I don't know. That's nothing. <laughs> that's nothing mm-hmm. to make like, to make your church a gazillion dollars in licensed music for other churches. Uh, it's pretty sad. Yeah. I mean, those songs are like chart topping and they license them out and everything else. You can't use them in your church without paying for a license to play them, which is also kind of insane. Uh, but yeah, that money isn't going back to the the artists who create it. Um, you know, I think also like there's a story that we've been kind of telling on the podcast by accident, maybe about evangelicalism having a, a global interest. You know, we did this episode on Pat Robertson and Guatemala recently and how Robertson was actively propping up, uh, that fascist regime. You know, you can like swagger it and fall while they're fundraising for fascists in Latin America, And we usually tell the story about that uh, kind of evangelical international ambition in a U.S.-centric way, and and I think it makes sense to do that. But one thing that clicked for me watching this documentary is that Hillsong shows that there's another center for imperialist ambitions, you know, (laughs) like uh, New Zealand and Australia are also a key um, launching point for for evangelical political desire and designs as well. Uh, Brian Houston was bragging about going to the White House, invited by Donald Trump, for example. There are all kinds of, uh, as we said, Hillsong efforts in other countries. And you have to imagine that, like, (laughs) Pentecostals that they find in, I don't know, like the Philippines or in Latin America or whatever are probably not the left-wing ones, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Like, uh, this is just kind of how Hillsong is working. It's, It's tapping into those global imperialist ambitions and I feel like the the story we need to tell is that evangelicalism is like it is a bourgeois spirituality. It is the spirituality of the ruling class, and it succeeds by drawing in people who are not necessarily in that class. I mean, it does draw in a lot of people in that class too, right? Uh, politicians and rich people and so on. But it it sort of uh, sucks in or absorbs the spirituality of working class people too in such a way that continues to sort of funnel, funnel money and value up to that, that bourgeois class. 
such that it can, you know, not only operate in its own self-interest of like accumulating money, but they're also creating, you know, legislative efforts. They're like constantly working against uh, um, LGBT laws, uh, all that kind of stuff, right? So I think that's the the other piece is that there is a real global imperialist ambition in evangelicalism, and uh, we're just maybe not not thinking of it that way, such that we're not also not, well, maybe people are studying it that way. I just like can't find it. <laughs> so if you know about it, let me know. But I haven't seen it. And I feel like it's important to sort of affirm that evangelicalism is a, a political project in the same way that like neoliberalism is a political project and they, they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, totally. Um, oh man. Okay. One quick so- aside, uh, Kristen Cobay Dumet, she's done the show. Yeah. And uh, that was a great piece of it. So it's like, I guess all I'm trying to say when when I say that is like that there are people on this documentary who are thinking very critically about evangelicalism as like a, like a theological form and a political form, but you know, it just misses the mark. I think in some ways (laughs) she's also in a shiny, happy people. She's having a a good moment. Deserved one. Yeah. I don't know. She's great. Um, But I think it's like, someone has to sort of pull all the pieces together. You know, one thing, like a long time ago, we had Heath Carter on the show. We were talking about his book, Union Made, which is a great book, um, all about like uh, progressive labor-oriented churches and the class struggle in Christianity. And, uh, you know, something he points out in that book is that Dwight Moody was directly tied to uh, the, the Haymarket riots and then kind of invents a form of evangelicalism as a direct competitor with the, the sort of nascent social gospel at the time. And you can trace a line from that to Billy Graham. You know, there's a whole kind of conspiracy around uh, Billy Graham and other evangelicals who are responding to the kind of FDR Christianity of the time, the New Deal Christianity, social gospel stuff. And then you get to people like Pat Robertson, which is maybe the the Reagan era, you know, and all the way down the line. And I think the 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 most frightening thing about Hillsong is that it uses uh, it's like accommodated itself to cultural forms in such a way that it is really a Trojan horse for conservatism. Like Pat Robertson is easy to look at in the 1980s and be like. That guy looks my, oh, yeah. my, my grandpa, he sucks. Yeah, like mm-hmm. just a nerd. Like you're you're not as an average normal person or like a person who's in touch with the rest of the world. You're not going to look at Pat Robertson and be like, that's what I'd like to be. Um, right. And but when the, Justin Bieber is going to the church and like getting yeah. baptized in your in your pastor's bathtub or whatever, it is a lot different. And, and it's like um, and it's palatability for like the masses or whatever. Exactly. And where the televangelists mobilize TV, Carl Lentz is mobilizing Instagram and it's the the rise of the influencer pastor. And I think it's important to recognize that all of that uh, packaging and branding and marketing um, is still part of that global ruling class project. Like you can trace a line from Dwight Moody being mad at anarchists in Chicago all the way to, you know, Brian Houston talking about, I don't know, why yeah. gay marriage is bad. And uh, it's really important to maybe keep that thread <laughs> being like, this is just the next mutation of, uh, yeah, right wing Christian political ambition. Yep, that's true. Um, go to a boring church, folks. I made that joke on Twitter <laughs> and a bunch of people got really mad at me. Uh, but if you're, you've got to you don't want to go to the big the big McDonald's church. You don't want to go to a church with a big stage in the middle and a rock band. That's going to get you into trouble for sure. You want to go to a boring church um, that, that, that at least will keep you out of this particular situation. <laughs> if you're going to go to a cool church, it should be like Ernesto Cardinal's where you all get around in a big circle and you talk about the Bible and revolution for a little bit and then go like paint, uh, I don't know, local informed uh, paintings. That sounds good. That seems like a cool church. Yeah, uh, you can even put it on Instagram, but you're probably not going to be an influencer. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you subscribe for two dollars or more, you can get an invite to the cool discord, um, which is fun. It's still going. People are on there. Man, a bunch of people this past week had not maybe this past week this past month they had babies and congratulations to them it's so great love a baby in the world another baby another problem but they're good they're good ones to have um <laughs> matt's uh going into his uh his duggar era on this podcast now <laughs> that's right uh the more babies you have you can take over your local <laughs> city council um <laughs> 19 kids and counting and they're all going to be city councilors 
to make sure that you can pray in school. I don't know. Uh, you can also, um, if you support us on Patreon, sometimes you get access to our uh, behind the paywall Patreon only podcast called The Lock In, where we do even goofier stuff than this. Um, we haven't been doing it lately because, again, I'm moving to another country, so it's been really stressful on my life. But we'll get back into the swing of things sooner or later. Um, okay. Our intro music is by Mario Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, 